What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Tim Dreeby. Tim is diagnosed with schizophrenia. He's a marriage and family therapist in the Bay Area who uses his lived experience of what was diagnosed as psychosis in his work. For the past six years, he's been leading special messages support groups for people who are overwhelmed with meaning, coded messages, voices, and intuitions that might have been diagnosed as paranoia and psychosis. So welcome to Madness Radio, Tim Dreeby. Thank you so much, Will. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I was really inspired when I learned about your your work, Tim. You're providing a real alternative way of understanding these experiences and valuing the meaning that they have for people rather than just going to a medical framework and saying, okay, this is a symptom of an, of an illness, you're schizophrenic, you're psychotic. So I'm, I'm really glad to have you on the show. Thank you, yes. And I should say that we actually met in a very interesting way. I was uh, doing a training on hearing voices in the San Francisco Bay Area. And while I, we were waiting outside to get into the building, um, a very strange, meaning-saturated moment developed where a man approached us and we were challenged. We were having this conversation on the street and I started to have these very lucid, awake, energetic kinds of feelings that I associated with my own experiences of altered states. And I don't know if you remember, but then when he left, there was this plastic data chip that suddenly appeared, like a an SD data car that appeared on the ground. And you and I just sort of looked at each other and we knew that there was something very powerful in the air that was moving uh, between us and in this scene. Yes, yes. I, I, I was treating it as I often do, as if it's if the guy was a agent or something and just trying to be very transparent in that because it was it was weird yeah and you have experiences like that like I do all the time it sounds yes. like oh definitely i try to roll with it and get my word out the way i want to get get it out there and and Tim, do you feel that if, if it's no longer overwhelming or problematic then it enriches your life and makes you feel like you live in a more meaningful reality yeah yeah i i kind of um can have fun with it uh sometimes it, it, it can be funny sometimes it can be uh enjoyable you know the people i get along with best are people who are in that zone uh that i work with for me when i talk about my messages or i talk about my experiences or i'm i'm transparent about it i have to make sure that i'm doing it in in a way that either i've established myself with the people who I'm disclosing it to, or they're, they're somebody who I can talk with because I know that they understand. They will understand. That's a really important um, point you make, uh, Tim, because those of us who live with these altered states, we very quickly learn that you, there are some people you can talk about it with and some people you can't. And often the recovery process is just learning to be more discriminating about what you reveal and where you reveal it so that you're not scaring or freaking out or overwhelming the people around you or giving a professional some reason to misunderstand what you might need. Exactly. Since I've 
started to consider that some of it is is valuable and real it's helped me be more effective and have more fun with situations instead of just calling it paranoia and saying that I need to pretend like it's not there because in reality some special messages are exactly meant to be interpreted the way they're interpreted and how did you get started with the, with this did you always kind of experience the world saturated with meaning and having synchronicities and and coded messages uh, I first started getting messages while I was working at a Section 8 housing authority in uh, Seattle, Washington, a housing project you could get into if you were just getting off the streets. And uh, it was highly publicized in the newspaper. There was a lot of uh, illicit goings-on that, that would happen at the um, residence, and a lot of people didn't feel safe there. There were a lot of people in message crises who were living there and, and combined with the kind of street issues that, that are oftentimes real, but oftentimes covered up. Were you in the mental health system before you started having special messages, and was it a different diagnosis or a different experience? I started out in um, ninth grade having insomnia for about six months, and that was solved by going to Outward Bound, and uh, basically they worked me hard enough so that I could sleep. The, the, the following summer after my parents divorced, you know, I just it was a real busy year, and uh, I started losing a lot of weight. So I ended up in uh, Child Guidance Center in, in Philadelphia. That was the first real inpatient hospitalization I had. I was out probably a total of nine months that year in, in, in the hospital setting, in an institutionalized hospital setting because of my eating. I was young. I needed to eat a heck of a lot, and I was scared to eat, and uh, it was it was a hard battle. I would say that I, I, I am sensitive to trauma, and I was experiencing a lot of trauma at the time, and, and one of the ways that I was trying to cope with it was by restricting my appetite. It was kind of like a self-cutting or a substances abuse. It was a, a way of, uh, of enduring just ongoing pain. It, it was a relief. It, you know, it was painful and it kept me focused so I could keep on doing what I was doing and maintaining what I was maintaining. I, I guess I had some difficulties with my parents' divorce. If I, if I talk about it with my hindsight of 2020, I think that I grew up in a, a privileged area in South Jersey and at a private school However, um, in the summers, we had a rural area that we go up and vacation in the summers. I think that I got very attached to people up there um, who lived a very different lifestyle, were definitely not from privilege the way I was. When I come back to the privileged area, I came back with a perspective on it that made it hard for me to really get along with the people in that area. And my parents were both teachers at the school, so I was a faculty brat. So that had something to do with it a little bit too. And then when did um, special messages and coded patterns become part of your life? Well, um, I never really know. I, I was given antipsychotics when I presented to um, a hospital in Philadelphia when I was in, in college. I was dressed in fluorescent pants, black converses, uh, with my hair slicked back, talking with a little snap in, in my um, lexicon, and, you know, was living in Camden, New Jersey at the time, and uh, had adopted a lot of the values and mores of that neighborhood. 
was having a lot of trouble with binging and purging. So they were they put me on an observation unit, and I told my uh, psychiatrist that I thought that the AMA was not um, in the right for suppressing Thomas Shaz. And that was the first time the eyebrows went up, and uh, I walked away with it getting prescribed Trilophon. And I was told it was a low dosage that most quote-unquote schizophrenics wouldn't need to take, would need to take much more of it than me. I eventually was told I had a schizotypal personality disorder. It was the type of thing that would mean that I was going to be depressed the rest of my life and I could expect to have problems the rest of my life. And this was because you, you were kind of dressing strangely with the pants and talking in a certain strange way. You were presenting yourself as an odd character. Was that a big part of it? I think I was a little bit odd. I challenged their authority quite a bit. I filled out the Rorschach with Marxian concepts, and um, that seemed to concern them. I was the type of person that, that, a, that a nurse would come up to and start lecturing me for w- without understanding why they had this edge and this negativity towards me. And I would have to assume that it would come from some kind of a meeting that was happening behind the closed doors. I didn't like the way I was treated, and, uh, you know, I spoke out. So I guess I come, came off as an oddball. You know, I was told that I had a, a paranoia because I thought people didn't like me. Uh, in fact, it was probably true that people didn't like me most of the time because <laughs> I was a little different. And when did you start to have experiences of coded messages? I got out of the hospital, put myself through a master's program, and I moved to Seattle without knowing anybody and got a job, decided to take a risky move to move into this Section 8 Housing Authority uh, location. Wanted to really bring about change in the, in, in the situation. And meanwhile, I, I had a psychologist who had been part of my life the whole way through. Uh, she really trained me to notice my paranoia and to, to pretend like it wasn't real. So I'm in this zone where there's a lot of covert reality. I don't know who's a cop and who's not a cop. I know there's drugs being, you can see the needles in the hallways. You can see people high. This is the housing project where you had gotten a job in Seattle. Yeah, there's uh, prostitution going on, all these kind of covert realities. And the uh, Seattle Housing Authority really did not want that information out. And there was a political battle going on behind the scenes, which I wasn't even aware about, where there was a company trying to take over the project, which eventually used a lot of what I did to change the ownership of the project. And they raised a lot of money for the project in in the end, but I didn't know any of this. I was just trying to advocate for the people that live there and try to get them more care and less cover-up. So you found yourself in a situation that actually did have covert realities, maybe coded messages with people talking on two levels, people hiding things, people saying things that weren't quite real in order to cover up other things and all kinds of political maneuvering going on just beneath the surface. That was the real work environment that you were in. Right. And if I shared any of it with my therapist, it would have been, that sounds paranoid. I remember telling her, hey, have you ever tried to explain to somebody that you're not paranoid before? It's a really hard thing to do. And she just laughed. thought it was very funny. Eventually, I decided to go off my medication. And I was fine for a while. Um, However, 
there was a difference being on the medication and off the medication. And I became much more aware of the reality of the covert reality and the oppression that was going on. So the medication actually made you less sensitive to what was really going on around you. And then when you came off of it, you started to feel and see more of what was actually happening? Yeah, I went off it probably because I felt like I needed to for safety reasons. Because, you know, I had all kinds of indications that, that things weren't safe. And uh, I wasn't listening to them. You know, I, I had this thing of living in the neighborhoods of Camden where I didn't want to judge or stigmatize the situation where I, I've coexisted with a lot of that. You know, uh, at the deli I used to work at, there would be a Glock under the, uh, under the grill and a shotgun over the trash can. And I never would touch them. I would refuse to use them. But I was uh, used to coexisting with that kind of presence. And maybe your maybe your psychiatrist who's telling you that this is not real and it's all paranoia, maybe they didn't have any actual experience of being in situations like that. Exactly. They they wouldn't know the double meanings in, in the language, double meanings which I've learned a lot more about since. So I can really balance and understand where people are coming from. I, I know when there's gangsterism going on and, and, and not, I get a sense of it and I can I, I know how to talk about it in a coded way so that I can feel it out and respect it and, and help there be more healthy solutions. So what happened in the uh, when you were working in this housing project with all this intrigue going on around you and you, you went off your medications and became more sensitive? What happened next? I took a uh, vacation with my sister to Mexico. She had family. She, her boyfriend was Mexican. And so I met his family down there, and I was off my medication, and I, uh, I kind of had a sense that things were going on. So I started to ask questions to assess if it was safe to live down there with the drug war, you know. Um, I was used to the drug war, and, you know, I found out there was that element there. I had this terrible fight with my sister. I returned to Seattle. The girlfriend who I had at the time, who was politically involved in removing SHA, Seattle Housing Authority, from control of the building, um, had really betrayed me, and we were we had started to get scared of each other. She had a lot of trauma, and it started coming out in our relationship. So I didn't trust her. I I didn't really trust anybody, and I I started to get this sense that. Some of the things that might be going on around me were uh, staged, were there to teach me a lesson that I need to learn that lesson really quick. That spread into movies like I saw the movie Me, Myself and Irene. Great movie. To me, it spoke to me a heck of a lot more about what I was going through than anything that I'd gotten from any textbook. And it was brilliant. I loved it. What was it in the movie Me, Myself, and Irene that spoke to you so much? Well, here he had a real covert reality, and the whole community was making fun of him and knew about it behind his back. And he was just going on as though it wasn't a big deal. And then all of a sudden he gets uh, this raging side of him that comes out and is on to everybody. I started to think that really fits what my life has been like. There's these dual realities. There's this reality of, of the streets that I know, and there's this reality of the, the privilege that I come from. And when I'm in the streets, I'm, I'm kind of seen as like I come from privilege. When I'm in privilege, I've seen like I, I don't fit in, like I come from the streets. I started to think, wow, 
maybe the FBI is involved with what's going on. And maybe the FBI was involved. It sounds like this was a pretty complicated situation with criminal activity and a lot of money involved and the Seattle Housing Authority and the city. And At the time when this was going on, I had um, some people coming and talking to me, some residents who had uh, told me who the drug kingpin was and he worked for DESC, which was the company that was trying to take over the building, who my um, girlfriend was working for. He came and said, you know, there was somebody who advocated for us just like you did, and they ended up losing everything and coming back and, and living in this project. I had a feeling I knew who the person was talking about. It was really ironic that within a week I was in a ditch in a Montana pass, and I ended up being taken to the state hospital. Telling you, look, there was somebody just like you who was advocating, and things didn't go very well for them. They actually went down and ended up just being a resident. Right. And so what happened? How did you end up in the hospital again? Uh, I had a friend back from my Camden days who was really a mobster, and I didn't know that. Uh, was a mobster? Yes, but I didn't really know that. He taught me a lot about it, and we had we were very close. He was my best friend. He had the history of sell- selling drugs, but I thought he was, you know, he was clean. I thought he was over that lifestyle, but he wasn't. And I called him and told him what was going on and asked him for advice. And he said, uh, all I can say is that if you ever betray me, that I have the power to do you great harm, and I will ha- I will use it if I have to. You know, this is my old best friend. So um, meanwhile, everything in Seattle is falling apart. I got a call from my, my sister's boyfriend who wanted me to pick somebody up in Mexico. And I'm like, I'm not making that, that trip right now. You know, it was it was all feeling risky, so I threw everything in the back of my car and and started to go down to Colorado to to my cousin's house. So you broke up with your girlfriend, and she was very involved with all this intrigue and the battle at the housing project. You questioned the world that your sister was in with the in Mexico with the atmosphere around drug dealing, and you got into a conflict with her. You're in a conflict with the people in the uh, housing project and all that complicated reality um, with trying to advocate for what's going on there. And then you discover that your your best friend is actually involved in drug dealing and the mafia. And then he threatens your life, basically. Yes. And then you just decided, I have to go to Colorado and be with my cousin because this my safety is, is at risk here. On the way down to Colorado, I started to think that my parents would probably have me hospitalized if I went to Colorado. I had this sense, this altered state sense that they were communicating with my therapist and that things weren't going to go the way I wanted to. So I um, I did what anybody else would have done. I took all the money I had out of the bank, stopped using my credit card. I shaved my head just to try to disguise myself, which was really not smart because I'm driving the same car with the same plates. But I started heading to the Canadian border through Montana, trying to figure out how to escape the country and seek asylum in Canada. At one point, you know, I was testing things out to see if the map that I had purchased was, was actually true or whether it was a uh, counterintelligence effort to try to confuse me. So you can see I was, you know, there was a lot going on. I, I gave some some young men in a white trucks that were sitting out there watching me $50 tip and to try to see if they were watching me. And I crossed over a barbed wire fence and um, walked through a farm, and these two dogs came racing at, up at towards me, barking, 
And I just yelled at them, and they both ran away whimpering. So that gives you a, a feel for the state I was in. It's so interesting, Tim, because part of what you're describing is an altered state, but most of what you're talking about is in this kind of gray zone where there was a lot of really good reasons for you to be frightened and to need to get out of a situation and to feel unsafe and to believe that there were all these kind of conspiracies or patterns going on behind the scenes because to some degree that was happening. There was a large part of me that had my wits about me that I wasn't going to let myself get mugged. I wasn't sure whether to trust the cops. The cops ended up uh, being uh, very violent with me. That experience was very uh, traumatic, being treated the way I was by the cops. The cops had come up to me and said, are your mommy and daddy trying to find you? Are, are, are your brain chemicals a little out of whack? And I looked upset when they said that, and I was upset. I was like, I thought the cops were following me, but I wasn't sure. So now I know they're following me. And then they uh, roughed me up and put the, the cuffs on really tight and... Uh, allowed some stranger to go into my car and root through my things, and I thought he was going to be putting evidence to get me put in jail in, in the car. So there was a lot of drama. So I thought I was being followed, and I really was being followed. So, Tim, it sounds like you were evading the police pretty successfully. How did you end up getting into the hospital, though? Policeman who told me to only accept rides from truckers, I found out three years later, did call my parents, and uh, was in communication with them. And uh, um, when I first talked to him, he asked me what was going on. I said, I think my parents are trying to put me in the hospital. Um, he gave me this terribly confirming look. So he, he set me up, and I did come across policemen that were standing by the side of the road in the one place that I could get off the road and get some food and, and water. It was late. I was at about mile 40 of my day and I was walking uphill into a mountain pass. At one point I just lied down for five minutes. I said, you know, I figured the police would be along. Sure enough, within five minutes the police came and it was cold uh, up in a mountain pass in Montana. And so it was threatening. I was sweating from, from hiking a lot. And I was well aware of that, but I, I would have gotten up. I, I wouldn't have let myself die. But the police sure enough came along the way they said and they promised me a Coca-Cola so I'd go with them. So I did. And uh, I ended up in the state hospital. And, and what, happened in the, what happened when you were in the hospital? The first person I talked to in the hospital was my roommate. And he told me that he was a Native American. He told me he had 130 IQ, but he was just a schizophrenic in a hospital. And uh, he told me that um, the mafia really was following me. Then he went to the window and there was a little cut in the screen and somebody passed him a note and he said, uh, oh, I have to go fulfill a mission. And uh, he went and did something and he came back and then he told me something along the lines of he knew the truth of what happened to Marilyn Monroe. Very graphic story about how she ended up dying. And at that point, I'm like, well, this guy's a schizophrenic in the hospital. I'm still, you know, I'm not a schizophrenic. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to assess this out. But what was really true about it was that the mafia was, in fact, following me. He told me there was this woman there who was the daughter of the Mexican mafia, the local Mexican mafia. And it took me about three weeks or four weeks to confirm that was true. And one of the things that I was complaining about was that my psychiatrist would refuse to meet with me for two months. When my, my psychiatrist finally did meet with me, um, she told me, you know, 
Tim, one time there was a man who came to us and said the FBI was following him. Guess what? They really were following him, but he hadn't done anything that was really that bad. And at that time, I did not trust her enough to ask her if she was talking about me or not, but I still wonder. There was a guy who was a patient in the hospital with me. I had a private conversation with him. He admitted that he had some training, and I thought he was maybe an FBI agent. Um, I was a little bit influenced by altered states. At the same time, um, his co- I might have been on to him about his cover. You know, He wanted to get his guitar from the staff and was requesting it. And I said, yeah, let's get this boy his guitar. So I was supporting him. He wasn't really escalating. He just said, I want my guitar. I want my guitar. So um, the next thing I know, the cowboy security guard guards are coming on the unit. Everybody bows out. And they don't come after my friend. They come after me. <laughs> and they give me a little beat down, put me in isolation. I'm afraid that, that I've uncovered the FBI's cover. I'm afraid to the point that I'm screaming his name out in the night. So for me, it was real, but it was not real. But it was, I don't know what was real. Just from saying that, the staff just came in and beat you up and put you in the isolation room. I would call it a beatdown because it injured my back. I did get punched on the back three times, which wasn't necessary. You know, but I was a little shifty. I took off my glasses and stomped on them. I just lived without my glasses for the rest of the three months until my mom came and then she bought me glasses. So I couldn't see for three months. You know, but that's the kind of, you know... So the next morning when um, they brought lunch to me, they didn't bring breakfast. They brought lunch. The burger was soaked in water, um, so it wasn't edible. And the nurse who came on the unit made uh, political comments that referenced my time in Seattle and some of the acts that I had done came to me and said, look, Tim, every, everybody knows that you know exactly what you're doing. Anybody who would go to the Morrison Hotel and publish publish 10 years worth of articles about the, the Norton Motel, which is something I had done, knows exactly what they're doing with all of this. So it was an accusation that I was trying to uncover things at the Morrison Hotel. Wow, the nurse actually in Montana was talking about things you had done in Seattle, and so she knew, and that must have completely reinforced your idea that there was this whole behind-the-scenes conspiracy going on with the police and the mafia and all the different things that had happened with the Seattle Housing Authority when you when you challenged them. Absolutely. It, it, it spoke to me. I, I had had her pegged FBI from the beginning. Yeah, that was very sketchy. Because so much of your story is really kind of in this twilight border zone between reality and not reality. It's based in reality. It's kind of exaggerated, but it's really not. And then these things keep happening that confirm that actually you're in tune with reality. It's not just this arbitrary, paranoid fantasy that you've created. It's actually grounded in something that's actually going on. And then here the nurse comes in and says this thing to you that really confirms a lot of what you've been fearing. So for two years afterwards, I didn't know if I was being harassed by the FBI, the mafia, or who. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and our guest today is Tim Dreeby, who is diagnosed with schizophrenia. He's a marriage and family therapist who uses his lived experience of that diagnosis in his work. For the past six years, he's been leading special messages support groups, working with people who are overwhelmed with feelings of coded messages, voices, intuition that can lead to paranoia and a diagnosis of psychosis. 
and people who are listening who think this is out of the realm of reality, I mean, think about it. If there's millions of dollars that are going into potentially a housing development in a large American city, corruption sometimes is real and sometimes it does involve the mafia and sometimes people do actually get followed and and set up and attacked and and these are realities of life in the United States and so here is someone who has been diagnosed and told oh this is just paranoia this is just this is just something you should dismiss but actually sometimes the things that we're paranoid about actually are real yes and um picture me on the phone to my parents you know, um, telling them that the mafia is in the hospital and the FBI and all this stuff, and they're like, "Oh, he's so sick, we can't he, we can't let him out of the hospital. We have to keep him here." My dad asked me to stay the the next nine months. Told me that if I got back out, that the same thing would happen to me over and over again. Which to me meant that my father was behind putting me in the hospital and keeping this going. My father, it took me years to f- discern really thought I was a schizophrenic and that the best that he could hope for me was living in the hospital the rest of my life. But given that the police had communicated with your parents, it's not that out of the realm of the rational to think that he might be more more involved. It was terrifically confirming to me at the time. And Tim, looking back, what would you have wanted your parents to do? How would you have wanted them to respond? Because so much of what you're saying was not in touch with reality, but so much of it was in touch with reality. So what, how would you have wanted them to respond? My parents did come through for me in some, in some major ways. So, and I'm grateful for that. But the ways that were unsuccessful was when they just assumed that everything I was saying was a delusion. And this happens to other people because I hear stories about it all the time. For example, they believed um, my sister's fiance's version of what happened in Mexico and not mine. Your fear that there actually were drug dealers going around and it was kind of not a safe place to be, that there actually was organized crime going on around you. Right. Some of what I experienced that was distressing was real and true and, and supporting me in that would have gone mountains to helping me trust them. But like when I got beat up, they told me that the staff had told them I was violent. Even though you weren't violent, you were just challenging them. I wasn't violent. I was challenging. Yeah. So supporting somebody against an institution is something that I very much think a family can do. But what about the fact that there was so much that maybe wasn't real? Would you have wanted them to just go along with everything that you were saying? It would take me two years to come to discernment that what was going on was real, but that it was not as exaggerated or not as dire as I thought it would be, and that I could get around it if I learned how to emotionally control myself and pretend like it wasn't real and learn when to talk about messages and when not to talk about messages. Would you have wanted to be able to talk about that with your family and get them to help you sort all that out? I might have liked that, but they weren't streetwise enough to understand where I was coming from or or the world that I lived in most of my life. And so, Tim, you went through this incredible experience with these complicated levels of reality and and covert uh, meanings and all these different intrigues that were going on around you. How did you learn to kind of live with your awareness and have the special messages and the altered states be an accepted part of, of your life? How did you make that 
recovery process or that transition? I trusted my family enough to move up to the Bay Area and accept the only job that I could get at an Italian delicatessen. And my parents gave me a little bit of financial support as long as I stayed with the job. And uh, the job was um, full of people who were in the mafia and making a lot of drug money. Um, First of all, to keep that job, what worked was that I chose that situation. And I made a commitment to that situation. I had to follow through with that commitment. And second of all was when people were kind of giving me a lot of trouble at the, on the job, I had to keep the job and keep making the sandwiches. So um, I followed through with that and eventually formed enough of a relationship with the people who were in the deli so that I could accept them and get their blessings to work somewhere else. And um, that's what I did. And when I was able to work somewhere else, I was able to get enough money so I didn't have to rely on my parents anymore. So it was a transition. And it, it took me quite a long time to get to the point where I would be open with my story. Why would you want to work in an Italian delicatessen with the mafia if you were scared of that? My aunt and uncle set me up with that job, and I tried to get any other job. Denny's, Costco, Target, any other job. couldn't get any other job. I I did nothing but put out applications, low level or high level. I could not find work for a year and a half. And in that time, I had to face up to my fears, face up to my judgments, face up to my anger about my hospitalization and come to an acceptance that this stuff is real, this stuff happens, and that I can allow it to happen without reacting to it. How did you come to that acceptance? Because so many people might feel that they need revenge or they need justice, that the bad guys need to be, you know, locked up and there needs to be some kind of settlement or something. How did you, did it take time? And what was it that allowed you to move on from that emotional reaction? It, it took a lot of time. And a lot of the time happened at the deli because they were, you know, from my standpoint, they were really targeting me. You know, there was a lot of very inappropriate stuff that happened there. Tim, do you think that you're someone who, for whatever reason, is more sensitive or more uh, vulnerable to the kind of underground, hidden, behind-the-back kind of reality that everyone is really surrounded with all the time, that there's always people talking about us, there's always criminal activity going on somewhere in our world, somewhere near us in our society, and do you think that you're more sensitive to that deeper layer of interactions and economics and politics that's kind of going on? Yes, I think I am. I don't drink. Um, I never use marijuana. I, When I was in Belize as a child, uh, I went out and worked in the fields with the workers and uh, heard stories of people who were killed out in the bush over marijuana. I was always very much not wanting to support that kind of experience because I didn't like the enslavement that it resulted in. And I think I have some social vulnerabilities. I'm a little bit 
slow to pick up on things. So that might mean that you're thrown into these situations and you don't really understand how to go along with them or do what most people do is act like it's not happening or act like it's not real or just ignore it, even though it actually is going on beneath the surface. Right. And I've learned to do that. I've learned to do that. I've learned to respect both sides and, and, and not believe in the fight and just want to bring about health in a person's life. That's my goal. How did you learn to do that? I mean, and what are some of the things? Because I know that you now lead support groups for people who are struggling with very similar kinds of experiences that you're describing. What are some of the lessons and what are some of the, the kinds of advice and guidance that you, you give to people so that they can also learn how to do what, what you learned how to do, which is to live with these experiences? Anybody who's been in the criminal justice system who gets out of a gang goes through what I went through. And when I could realize that and own that, even if nobody else believed it, that helped me enormously. And it helped me relate to people who've been through that experience. And it helped me appreciate them and appreciate the choice not to get out of that. Additionally, um, when I was coming up on in Camden back in the day, I saw what those kids were faced with. And I know that many of them, uh, I taught them the work at, at the deli. And many of them left to enter the crack trade, and it broke my heart to some ex- ex- extent, but I could certainly understand why. It made me realize that um, that even though that's not the choice that I want to make, it, it, it's a reality that a lot of people have to accept and deal with and live with, and um, I have total respect for it. I'm lucky that I had old money to run back to, and not everybody has that. I would have been forced to steal, and I was very um, convinced that I did not want to do that. So a lot of people with privilege, maybe, don't ever get exposed to this other side of social reality, and you've been kind of someone who's lived in both realms, and then when you try and explain it to your parents or to a psychiatrist, they don't want to even realize that there is this dark side to society, and some people do actually get caught up in it. And now... Today, you're working with a lot of people who who also are going through these things because they've also been dealing with mafia or drug dealing or the criminal justice system or prisons or gangs. Absolutely. Uh, You know, and that's what's part of what Special Messages is about, is to um, honor that some of it's true and make healthy choices about how you handle those messages and and, uh, face up to your fears. And how do these support groups work? I mean, first of all, you want to tell us how you came up with the idea of starting them and then what happens in the groups and then tell us maybe something about how the groups help people. Whether it's a voice or whether it's an intuition or whether it's a um, coded reality, they're all treated as equals and um, they're all treated as special messages. They give you a little bit of extra information that everybody might not pick up on. And then once you get that information, there's the natural, there's natural processes that people tend to go through. And I try to redefine that. I, I, I consider it reconstructing the experience rather than deconstructing it. Um, and I believe in reconstructing it because if you can see it better and it's less covert and it's less, it's less secret, it's less traumatic. And it may be necessary for people to integrate their realities so they can go into the work world and go into the street world and, and integrate because it's so complicated. It's, it's so, it's such an, a have not or have all 
society. How do, and give us some examples of maybe people that have come to the groups and how they've done that, what, what they've done to start to integrate that and start to deal with their special messages in a different way. One of, the, one of the tricks that I'll use is if somebody's like, let's say they're hearing black mafia messages, voices telling them that about mafia deals, and I know that. They, I'm talking with them, and they're hearing voices, and I'm looking at them, and I'm getting special intuitions based on their body language. So I start to communicate mine and express my anxiety and my this and my that over it. And the person who's hearing the voices says, oh, I don't trip over that. Then I say, well, guess what? Um, when I hear voices, I don't trip over the voices, but I do trip over the, the, the body intuitions. And we're really, we're part of the same culture uh, and we can learn from each other instead of being divided from each other. So one of the things I'll try to do is um, help them see what their advantages are versus their disadvantages. An example of this is a, a gentleman who, let's say, hears voices telling him about you know, a mafia experience and, and his voices are telling him about murder and death and he's getting all this other extra, extra information about it. And it's preoccupying him to the point where he can't work and he can't do anything. I would consider that as quote unquote tripping or having divergent views over his voices. Meanwhile, I don't have that experience. I've heard a few voices, but my voices have helped me but I do get a lot of a lot of uh, body language and um, energy kind of experiences from people. So when I'm working with him, I will be very open and vulnerable about what I'm reading from him and express my anxiety and my um, and my social read on what where he's coming from. And then he, and then I will ask him. I'll do a reality check with him. Is this how you're feeling about me? And he's like, he he will say, Oh, I'm not tripping over that. I'm not. I'm I'm not thinking about that. And I'll say, Thank you. That really helped me out with 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 my my experience. And I want you to know that um, that my experience is no different than hearing those voices in some ways. That that you have a strength that you don't trip over interpersonal interpersonal messages. Well, while I have a strength, I don't trip over voice messages. So we can get together and learn from each other and compliment each other. And you can learn what you're good at and I can learn what I'm good at. So on the spot, you'll say, look, I'm having an experience. I'm noticing some body language that you're doing. I'm having some feelings about some energy that I'm getting from you can I ask you about that? And then you talk about it with them. And that's a kind of way of showing them how you deal with it. And then they can say, well, okay, I don't have these body language experiences, but I do have voice experiences. Maybe I can ask you about that. And then it's almost like developing a culture of coping or a culture of sharing everybody's unique strategies in, in the moment. And you do that as a support group facilitator so it's a peer experience as a marriage and family therapist i do that and it's taken me a long time to be able to get the license and get the get the accreditation and get the respect and i still don't get respect all from all everybody that i work with i have had a lot of success with these kinds of techniques and this kind of working with people and people have to acknowledge that it, that, it, that it works tim give us some other examples of people that have 
had stories or different messages or meanings and then how the groups have helped them? I have had a person who was, was say, very street savvy, um, very involved in real gangsterism, I'll say it. And this person tends to have a lot of experiences of hearing voices. So he's made allusions to knowing about my history. And then this person finds out that I also have heard a few voices and then he realizes for the first time that because he's been traumatized by the way his world works and I, he shared this experience with me and now I have the same experience, he can see his voices and his voice experience in, from a new light and um, more as a natural occurrence. And he, and, and he can say other people have this experience too. I'm not the only one. And that's a big deal somebody who's who's dealt with voices for their whole life and hasn't talked about it. And have there been strange synchronicities or uncanny uh, coincidences and alternate realities you want to tell us about from people in the group? Oh, so many. Somebody, they will tell a story about how, how they dreamed of a song before it was released. They had a premonition of the song and it will, it will make, it will make somebody else remember how they had that same experience and how they knew the song before, and then it will help explain, you know, other people will relate to it and, and make it more normalized and make it more like, you know, premonitions really do happen. So it, it just helps people with these unusual experiences, unusual information, unusual senses, understand that they're not alone and that it's not that unusual, and it helps them regulate it and, and, and not be so distressed by it and not be so focused on it. Are there people that come to the groups that have mind control experiences where they believe that someone has put poison in their um, water or they're tracking them through radio waves or through chips or that kind of thing? Yes, definitely. That's happened to me. Um, I used to think people were poisoning me through food. I, I did believe the mafia was controlling me to that extent. And so, yes, um, that does happen. Um, in the groups as well, um, sometimes people believe in telepathies. Sometimes people believe in mind control. My way of connecting with that is to identify how that's happened to me and how it's happened to other people in the group and how there are certain coping strategies that can be used and to take those experiences apart and relate them to other people's experiences by saying your messages are just a little bit different. Mm -hmm. What are some of the coping strategies? Mindfulness about what's actually going on in messages. Instead of trying to push it away, trying to look at it so you can define it better. Uh, another coping strategy, relaxation and doing something outside of the message world that you can physically get done or you can physically complete, whether it's making a relationship or whether it's making a sandwich whatever works for you to accomplish something that's outside of the message world. Uh, another one is um, making social relationships with people um, in spite of the fact that they may be punishing you for your messages. Getting out of the double bind that tends to happen that we tend to define during the message process by um, making contacts and using relationship skills, killing the customer with kindness, for example, 
not retaliating against and, and making the person think. Um, so social skills. Sometimes I, I do think that um, some rational thinking can be helpful when you're doing it with a goal in mind. So we have a little section on anti-stigma cognitions or rational thinking, which is ways to evaluate things according to your strengths and your and, and facts and not according to stigma and what other people are putting on you. I argue that's a lot like looking at distorted thoughts in the way we're looking at stigma thoughts. And there's ways to uh, overcome them by focusing on what makes us human, what makes us what we're good at, what makes us enjoy life. And that's different for everybody. So, Tim, this is very different than what is often taught in psychiatry and psychology, which is that you challenge the person on the belief and you say, look, this is not real. It's a delusion. It's a symptom of your illness. You don't have insight. And then you try and pressure the person. And often with, with medications that helps to get them quieter or not talking about it so much or start to not have as much of an emotional reaction. And so what would you say to someone who says, well, look, you can't just join someone's reality. It's going to reinforce it. Or I don't want to go along with saying, yes, the mafia are after you or, or please don't worry, they're going to get caught soon or something like that. I mean, what would you say to people who might hesitate for this, this kind of approach? This is what tends to work in therapy when you understand and you accept the culture. It happened to me when I was getting eating disorder treatment. It happens with almost with depression, with almost every other kind of problem. There is acceptance for to to understand what the person's going through. And when when that's not afforded to somebody with special messages or psychosis, that you're actually treating them differently than everybody else, and that that ends up oftentimes feeling very oppressive. It is not the way trauma is dealt with, and and we know with trauma treatment that telling somebody to grin and bear it and 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 not and just make it go away doesn't work. Yeah, or telling them that no, you weren't raped, or no, you weren't beaten by your husband, or that that's not real, that is one of the worst things that you can tell to someone who's a trauma survivor. And I know one of the things that I often am saying is that, look, I, I wasn't there. I didn't see the NSA put the microchip in your wall or I didn't know about whatever this poisoning thing is or whatever this mind control conspiracy that you're talking about because I didn't see it personally. But I do see the suffering that you're going through. I do see that you are being traumatized by this and all of your trauma is consistent with what you're saying it's consistent with someone who's been tortured it's consistent with someone who's had their mental reality invaded by some mind control so i'm not in a position to tell you that i witnessed it and i can say i know it's true but i know your experience is true and in general you know i think that the world is much weirder than we realize i think that there are multiple levels of reality and a lot of us just organize them differently. Different cultures say different things about special messages or demons or about telepathy. And, and who are we to say from our Western technological culture that we're superior, that a different way of looking things isn't as valid as the kind of rational, mechanistic, objective, concrete reality way of 
looking at things. So I'm I'm very open to, well, maybe on a different level of reality, a different perspective, what this person is saying could be true because it may very well be. And I know that from my own experience, I'm not going to just tell myself, okay, my voices aren't real or the demons that I've struggled with weren't real. All that was just a symptom of a, or a metaphor or something because to me they are real and I continue to deal with those experiences and I don't want my recovery process to be seen as I have to kind of get over the delusions and connect it to the reality of real events and it's all metaphors because I have a spiritual view and I see those realities from a spiritual perspective and it's just as real as somebody else who who doesn't. So I think it's very important if we're building relationships, just like you said, I mean, we collaborate with people, we work together to try and understand things, not get into a power struggle that says, okay, you have this delusion, we're going to try and beat it down by convincing you that you lacked insight or that you need medications because you're, you, because you're mentally ill. And Tim, I think a lot of uh, the way that psychosis is talked about is in terms of, of recovery and getting rid of psychosis, but a lot of us just learn to live with our experiences and relate to them differently. Are, are these experiences, these are something that you're continuing to live with uh, today, even as a as someone who's working as a professional and as a, a therapist and who's leading these groups, you're living with these special messages and synchronicities. Can you give us an example of how you, how you do that? I believe that I can observe a message now um, that has a meaning to me, and I can experience the feelings associated with the message and, and let them pass through. And then instead of being afraid or angry at the message, I can interact with it in, a, in more of a playful manner. One of the stories I like to tell is when I was in Fresno, everywhere I walked there were oranges on the ground. What that meant to me back then was that that was a sign that I was being tracked followed and I could be neutralized or, or killed at any minute. Now I still have these funny experiences with oranges. Some of them I've instigated. I've t- brought in for my messages group. I brought in a box of oranges and handed them to everybody there. You know, I, I've talked about this in a program and the next day there's oranges out on all the, t- all the, all the tables and the countertops. The fact of the matter is that uh, people bring up oranges and I, you know, hey, I, they may have a covert meeting or they may not. It doesn't matter to me. Um, I don't um, react to them. I can respond to them. I'm not threatened by them anymore. It can actually be a little playful and fun. And it, it, it makes you remember some of the hard things you went through and, and uh, some of the joy that you have for the fact that you got through it. Tim, we don't have very much time. So let us know how people can get in touch with you and find out more about the special messages group that you do and the trainings that you do. And also you have a book that is being published. Uh, I have a memoir being published in hopefully March. And I have a grant program that is assessing the best way to reach isolated individuals with these strategies of connecting with and accepting and, and living with these messages. The best way to reach me for that is to email me at special.messages7 at gmail.com. Tim Dreeby, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you so much, Will. It was, it was very fun. You've been listening to an interview with Tim Dreeby. 
He is diagnosed with schizophrenia and today works as a marriage and family therapist based in the San Francisco Bay Area. For the past six years, he's been leading special messages support groups for people who are overwhelmed with coded messages, voices, intuitions that might be diagnosed as psychosis or paranoia. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, Portland Hearing Voices, and Freedom Center. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall and producer is Leah Harris. Madness Radio is based at KBOO in Oregon and can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net.